Coming up on Tech Nation, Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks join me to talk about messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. From the neuroscience of it to the human behavioral characteristics, some of their answers may surprise you, while others will simply confirm what you already knew about yourself. And did you know you had a personal data lake? It's a concept we'll cover with Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis, the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2014, I was able to speak with Dr. Savante Pabo, the author of Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I asked him, we used to wonder whether Neanderthals ever interbred with modern humans. Is that debate over? Yes, I would say so. So by looking at the genomes of Neanderthals, we can now really show that pieces of their DNA has made it into people who live today. So that Neanderthals live on a little bit, if you like, in people today, if your ancestry comes from Europe or Asia. So it's not everybody, but we can tell the 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 people who migrated through the Europe and Asia, the northern part, could have a little piece. Yes, so everybody who comes from outside Africa have pieces of Neanderthal DNA in them, whereas people in Africa do not. Now, remind us, 40,000 years ago, some band of people left Africa, emerged out, and that's really where everyone else came from today. Um, and they, when they made it up into Northern Europe, that's where the Neanderthals were. Yes, so our best model for how this happened was that when modern humans emerged in Africa, they spread, of course, not only in Africa, but also out of Africa. And they then have had to pass by the Middle East. And we know there were Neanderthals in the Middle East at that time, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. And those people there, if they then mated with Neanderthals and became the ancestors to everybody outside Africa... So they sort of absorbed a little bit of DNA from Neanderthals and then carried it with them when they spread across the world. So that we find Neanderthal DNA today in people not only from Europe and Western Asia where Neanderthals have existed, but also in Native Americans or in people in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific, even places then where Neanderthals never existed. It was carried through other people getting there. Yes. Now, George Church was here, the famous uh, Harvard geneticist, and he says, I've got even more Neanderthal in me. Take a look at me. (laughs) So there's variations as to how much you might have in you. There's a little bit of variation. It's not that much variation. In Europe, it's in the order of 1% or so of the DNA of any individual. It's slightly more, actually, in East Asia. And there are good evidence now that one mated at least another time with Neanderthals, perhaps in the Central Asia or so, when people migrated to the east. Now, the Neanderthals, they existed well before the Homo sapiens. Yes. So depending a little on how we define a Neanderthal morphologically from the remains of their bones, they appear something between three or 400,000 years ago in Europe and Western Asia. 
whereas modern humans appear somewhere between 100, 200,000 years ago and start spreading out of Africa something like 50, 60,000 years ago. My goodness, they started and they ended and we're still going. Yes, and they existed even longer than we have existed so far on the planet. Ah, lesson to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it sort of puts it in perspective a bit who is successful. Now, how long have you been trying to get DNA from Neanderthals? Well, so this really goes back to the early 80s when I, I started my PhD in molecular biology back in Sweden. Uh, I had previously studied Egyptology and thought I would become an Egyptologist and got disenchanted with that and went to medical school. But I was then aware that there were thousands and thousands of mummies of both animals and humans in museums from Egypt and started looking into if people had tried to extract DNA and replicate it in bacteria from these things. And as far as I could make out, no one had tried, so I started Dr. Savante Pabo directs the Department of Evolutionary Genetics at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. In 2010, his team was the first to reconstruct a nearly complete Neanderthal genome. This 2014 Tech Nation interview discusses his book, Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks join me to talk about messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. Science can tell us a thing or two, and some of that science may influence you to listen more carefully and trust differently. Then Tech Nation regular consumer security contributor Gary Davis talks about how we have personal data lakes. Hint, they need tending. And now, Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks. Stephen, Joe, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having us, Maura. It's good to be here. Thank you, Moira. What a pleasure. No doubt you've heard that right here in the U.S. we have a media situation that has never been so polarized. One side listens to one set of media channels. Uh, the other listens to the other. What does this say about the media channels or sources? And what does it say about the listeners, readers, and viewers? Well, I think it's a super interesting question. And I think where Joe and I would come uh, in terms of answering that question is to think about it in terms of not what is being said, but more who is saying what is being said. We've conducted now about two and a half years of, of research into the idea of why do certain people listen to certain messengers and why is it that other people uh, will 
almost dismissed what people are actually saying. And it, we come to the conclusion, Moira, that increasingly in this polarised society that we're living in, um, you know, what is being said seems to matter less than who is saying it. And as a result, in this increasingly information overloaded world that we live in, it's the messenger that has become the message. I, I mean, in my own research, I've been looking at um, the effects of political similarity on our perceptions of others' competence. And what we find is that if you know somebody shares the same political views as you, then you rate them as more competent on a completely unrelated task that has nothing to do with politics. <laughs> and as a result, you're more likely to listen to their advice on that topic and also seek information, seek advice on that topic from somebody who you think is competent merely because they possess the same political views to you. We always say uh, media is about perception, not about truth. <laughs> A lot of perception you know, you, getting delivered. <laughs> you're exactly right. Um, you know, when we make inferences about who we should listen to and, and whom we should believe, often we're not listening to the content or the merits or the wisdom or even the truthfulness of what's being said. Instead, we are making judgments based on a, a perception of the individual or the, or the platform that's actually communicating that. And we, so we are inferring. You're exactly right. Perception does seem to be important. And what's really interesting, almost incredible, is the speed that we often make these judgments about whom we should listen to. Often in a, a matter of milliseconds, we decide, yes, I'm going to listen to her and I'm going to dismiss him even when those two messengers might be saying the exact same thing. Here on Tech Nation, you know, we're only audio, uh, either in, in broadcast form or uh, in podcasts. What can you tell us or what can be told from a disembodied voice? I think there's a lot to be told from a voice alone. So, of course, you can't see hand gestures and facial expressions, but you get a, genu uh, a general sense of how confident a person is and how mo you know monotone their voices gives a clue as to how warm they are and how kind of uh, positive and uh, you, you, you hear a lot of emotion in the voice too so I think despite the fact you not be able to read a person's face which is largely how humans like to read non-verbal uh, non behaviours we do actually have a wealth of information coming in through the pitch and uh, speed of which we speak as well. So I think there's plenty there to, to still decode. There is. It's interesting uh, for us because so many times we hear all this energy in a voice, and uh, uh, which is very exciting. And sometimes if the person is in my studio looking at me, they don't look excited at all. <laughs> Perhaps they've been trained to, you know, uh, es essentially amend their voice to ensure that their message is heard. In fact, you know, one of the things we actually found, we, we talk about in the book, um, you know, we're both from the UK. You probably recognize that from our voices. Uh, and we found that um, both our previous and only female prime ministers that are, were elected to office in the United Kingdom, both took voice training, voice, voice coaching to essentially lower their pitch uh, and be able to communicate a message in, in a more dominant, competent-based way. Uh, so, so there's an example of how um, this is recognised, you know, often when we are only listening to a voice, uh, 
certain communicators will actually take steps to arrange for their voice to be optimal so that their message is heard. And even if you are in person, frequently you're hearing them through a microphone. And these microphones were all designed for men and their chest cavities and their deeper voices. So a portion of our voices as females are going to get cut out anyway. Hmm. And and I think the research kind of Steve was talking about kind of links to that in that they found that um, if if the the deeper the voice is, the more likely a politician is to get elected, and mm. the more likely they are to receive applause after a talk. Um, so I think that's absolutely true that these kind of deeper voices that signal dominance and a bit more status are generally perceived to you know. Yeah, give some positive kind of uh, response in their audience. I think it's also important to point out here that it's not always the the deeper monotone voice that will carry sway. You know, if an audience is anxious in some way or, or looking for some form of certainty or a direction to move in, that's when these dominant voices are most likely to carry sway. But, you know... In certain situations, like I, I can imagine, you know, when you go to see your doctor and he's about to, you know, perhaps deliver some bad news, you probably wouldn't want that deeper, you know, more authoritarian voice. You'd want a warmer, more, you know, uh, calmer voice to deliver that kind of news as well. So it really does matter the context in which a voice is being heard. Uh, that will also have a, an important determination on who will be listened to and, and the acceptability of what they say. There's also a common phrase known as motheries, which is when mothers speak to babies, they have that tone of voice, that kind of prosody in their voice. And the way that they say things is very sing-song, oh, aren't you lovely? So this kind cute. of thing. You're so cute. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? And uh, it and it's 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 there for a reason. Um, it's because babies are attuned to it and they find it warmer. As Steve was saying, um, and that kind of voice as well is is also you know uh, is a, is is an effective route, I guess, as well, to influence and, and to messenger effectiveness um, in other contexts. As Steve was saying, I'm reminded that. Uh, I was once given a definition that I, I, I really liked, that maturity in humans, maturity, uh, was having multiple behaviors. And so in a sense, if you are a messenger, your ability to develop multiple delivery styles, I think, is really important. I think you're exactly right about that. Um, and I think that maturity doesn't just extend to being able to you know, garner multiple styles. Uh, it also extends to identifying the situations where one style is going to be more, uh, you know, uh, important or more likely to be listened to another as well. So, so it is a mature uh, uh, ability there. That that life experience does count for a lot. I think in not only understanding what type of messenger position to adopt, but also to identify. Uh, the right environment uh, that is, uh, you know, or the, or, or the audience situation uh, that they find themselves in uh, to be able to identify what is the right uh, trait at that point as well. Well, let's get to selling your message. You refer back to the 1980s work of Edward Jones and Thaden Pittman, and they identified five strategies that a messenger could adopt. Competent, 
morally respectable, intimidating, likable, or pitiful. <laughs> so we're, you have to remember that was the 1980s. That was 40 yeah. years ago. Yeah. And you've come up with a new analysis. Why was that really good then? And why, did it, why does it change now? Well, I think one of the reasons it's actually changed is that we have now 40 more years of psychological, social psychological and, and neuroscientific research. So we can update uh, Jones and Pittman's work from the, the 1980s. You know, when, we're not dismissing that work. Uh, but what we do offer is a, a more contemporary way of viewing who an audience is likely to listen to and, 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 and who they're likely to ignore regardless of what's being said. And so our approach is essentially twofold. You know, uh, there are hard messengers in society, and those hard messengers are able to arrange for their message to be accepted because they're seen by their audience or perceived by their audience to have some form of status. And in contrast, we have soft messengers, and the soft messengers are able to be heard because... They don't necessarily have status over an audience, but what they do have is some connectedness with their audience. And so we categorize those messenger effects in terms of hard and soft. And within each of those categories of hard and soft, there are four traits uh, that most reliably inform an audience of whether or not they should listen to what's being said. The first hard trait is socioeconomic position. So that's how well-established, well-educated, well-connected, uh, wealthy somebody is, um, how much resources they have. And, uh, you know, people signal their status in many ways. Um, this has kind of been referred to as conspicuous consumption. Or, and, and then you have costly signaling theory, which is the idea that like peacocks who grow their tail in a way that's actually costly for them, um, humans will endeavour in, in into costly ventures in order to signal how much wealth they have to other people and by doing so show their status and sh uh, attract kindness from others um, including from in, you know romantically <laughs> um, and, and we, we talk about I've seen those peacocks of... out there no <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it's, sometimes it's, it's very similar to peacocks isn't it <laughs> the second messenger trait is competence uh, and competence is important because audiences want to have some sort of signal that the person or the group or the organisation that they're about to listen to has some expertise or credibility that informs them uh, of what they're about to say. So, so experts are important when it comes to who we listen to because they have um, what we would call in the social sciences instrumental value. They have a learnable value that we can gain from. And so when we see a messenger to have some form of competence or even perceive that they have competence, that might be a good context where we're more inclined to listen to them. The third effect is dominance, and dominant messengers are combative rather than friendly types. They seek to triumph over other people. They want to be the winner. And people respond to this. In fact, from an astonishingly early age, uh, developmental research shows that uh, infants who are 10 months old will expect previously dominant messengers to be rewarded more and will also be surprised if they see them lose out to a previously submissive messenger. And the fourth and final hard messenger trait is attractiveness. Uh, oh, and what we're talking about here, Maura, is physical attractiveness. It turns out that 
those folks that are born genetically blessed are given a significant advantage in life. Uh, they, they earn more money, economists have actually shown. Uh, they're more likely to get the job over uh, an average-looking uh, candidate who has the exact same qualifications, perhaps even slightly better qualifications. Um, and so when we see those cues of attractiveness, that can be a reliable indicator of whether or not we should listen to an individual or not. And what's really interesting about the attractiveness thing is that, you know, even trained scientists that should know better fall foul of this attractiveness bias. You know, medical doctors, it's been shown in studies, um, are more inclined to prescribe drugs that have been promoted by drug sales representatives who are particularly attractive. They deny that these attractive messengers have any sway over their prescribing, but the data and the scientific research tells a different story. Well, that's an easy one. All those young blonde girls who, whose first three years on the job market was spent being a pharmaceutical rep. I can't imagine where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> and now let's get to the soft ones. What are the soft ones? Yeah, soft messages, in contrast to hard messages who seek to show status and get ahead of their audience, actually seek to cooperate and get along with other people. And so rather than uh, try and get respect and admiration for themselves, they actually bestow these qualities onto others. And they're very friendly and warm. Um, and essentially, they, they speak in ways that show their positivity, they show they care, they show they're friendly. Um, and actually, this has a, a big effect. So one study with doctors found that uh, people listening to the audio tapes from doctors could rate how dominant or warm they sounded. Um, and what the researchers then found was they, cor they correlated these ratings with the likelihood of the doctor being sued for malpractice and showed that doctors who had a more dominant-sounding voice were more than twice as likely to be sued than those who were equally competent but spoke with a warmer tone of voice. The second soft messenger trait is what Joe and I call vulnerability. Uh, and uh, the vulnerable messenger essentially recognises that they, they certainly have no status over an audience. Um, they have no socioeconomic position. They don't necessarily have, uh, you know, competence to be able to get their message heard. And so what they do instead is they, they essentially wear their heart on their sleeve. They communicate some vulnerability about themselves. And what that can often do is, you know, create some connection with an audience. Um, there's one study that we really, really liked that we've, we've written about in, in the book. Uh, and it concerns a situation that we've all been uh, uh, in, you know, we're all familiar with, that situation where perhaps in an airport or in a train station, you know, we're running late and there's a long line to get to the ticket desk or to the check-in counter. And, you know, you want to kind of ask the person in front if they're allowed, you know, would it be okay if I cut in the line? And what the researchers did was they essentially wanted to understand how much money do we have to give to someone in a queue or a line in order for them to allow us to get in front of the line. And as you would expect, the more money that was offered, the more likely the person in front of them would allow that person to cut in line. But what was really interesting was they never took the money. What? <laughs> they never yeah. took the money? They never took the money. It's like the money was a sign of vulnerability. It's almost like people saying, well, if you're prepared to give me 
10 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks to cut in front of the line. You really must be in a desperate situation. And when people, messengers that we see in a desperate situation, communicate that fact, sometimes we connect with them. We, we become more inclined to respond to that need or to that message. And so vulnerability is the second of our soft traits. The third of the soft traits is trustworthiness. And, you know, generally we say trust is crucial to any human relationship because without trust you can't have prosperous, prosperous economic exchanges or uh, romantic relationships or productive workplace collaborations. Um, and, and broadly there are two forms of trust. So we have competence-based trust, which is our confidence in a messenger's capabilities. Um, and we also have... Um, integrity-based trust, which is our belief that a messenger will stick to good, virtuous, moral norms, even if a temptation to violate them arises. Um, and so what we find that's kind of interesting with trustworthiness is that messengers can build up a bank of credits, in a way, um, that actually allow them to then change or, or uh, potentially even commit wrongdoing in the future. If you've seen that somebody is trustworthy in the past, and in particular, if they have taken your side in kind of group conflicts and group positions in the past, then then once they start moving away from that position, they're given quite a lot of leeway. They essentially have built up credit in the bank, and we trust them not to betray us. And the final soft messenger trait is charisma. And charisma is really interesting from a scientific perspective because it was only 2016 where the scientific community uh, really agreed upon what a definition of charisma actually is. Uh, and it, it's largely now accepted that charisma is an ability for a communicator, a messenger, to instill some form of devotion in their audience. And they largely do that by communicating a grand vision, uh, some unifying direction that the whole of that audience can buy into. Uh, they also have, more something that psychologists call surgency. Uh, and, and, and surgency is essentially that ability to communicate in a, an upbeat, positive way. And often that positive, upbeat voice is accompanied by uh, overt hand movements. There's some really interesting research that's been done with TED presenters. Uh, you can take two TED presenters who are largely, you know, concerned with communicating the same message or the same subject matter. Let's say the, well, there's two presenters that talk about leadership. And what the research finds is that the, the presenter that uses more hand gestures, typically about twice as many hand gestures as their less charismatic presenters, uh, are often rated as a much better talk, uh, will receive more views, even though essentially the content of their message is exactly the same. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira again, and my guests today are Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks. Stephen Martin is a visiting professor of behavioral science at Columbia University Graduate School of Business and the CEO of Influence at Work UK. You might know him as the author of, yes, 50 Scientific Ways to be Persuasive. 
Joe Marks is a researcher at University College London and a visiting researcher at MIT. His publications include both academic journals and such venues as the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review. Their book is Messengers, Who We Listen to, Who We Don't, and Why. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis talks about our personal data lakes. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks. Their book is Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. Now, I've always said trust is all we have on Tech Nation. Is it trust between us and the listener? We go out of our way to, you know, make sure that the people coming on have the backgrounds they say they do and they're, they're you know, qualified to talk about what they're going to talk about. Don't get worried, guys. <laughs> we didn't look that <laughs> deeply into your background. <laughs> we just want to make sure that everything is right. Trust is all we have. I was so surprised uh, at a number of things here. And here's the first one. Um, being known for being truthful is not the same as being perceived as trustworthy. Why is that different? Yeah, it was one of the most shocking things to us as well, I think, that trustworthiness and truthfulness are actually not the same thing. And that's because truthfulness relies on people weighing evidence and essentially computing mathematics, whereas Perceptions of trustworthiness rely on much broader, vaguer assessments about a person, which are the kind of assessments and judgments we're used to making every day in milliseconds, actually, um, often guided by intuition and uh, and, and emotion. And um, so what what's really interesting to us is that um, you can often see the case where people... And 
their supporters actually register that they're lying. They know that they're not telling the truth, and yet they still rate them as trustworthy. And this is kind of very perplexing, um, but it makes sense if you think a bit deeper about what trustworthiness really is. And essentially, it's our kind of prediction of an individual's future good faith. It's our belief that under the surface, they have the right kind of latent motivations and goals that will align them to us, that they won't betray us, that they are going in the direction we want them to go in, and that they will essentially cooperate with us if uh, if, if we can see it like that. Um, so I think that's really shocking. And actually, we collected some data to show exactly this, which was after Boris Johnson had suspended Parliament, uh, we asked a bunch of Brexit voters and also Remain voters who took the other side uh, in the referendum on Brexit in the UK, uh, whether they thought that Boris Johnson was telling the truth, that he had just suspended Parliament to wait essentially for a Queen's speech and it was all normal procedure, or whether they thought he was lying and that he'd done it just to avoid scrutiny and to be able to force a no-deal Brexit through without parliamentary procedures getting in the way. And what we found was that even Leave voters who had supported Boris Johnson uh, and and essentially wanted the UK to crash out of the EU, uh, thought that he was lying. They didn't believe him. And yet, they still rated him as the most trustworthy politician of all those we included in our set. These situations are so puzzling. Uh, and I'm always surprised, and I, and I was reading in your book very carefully to say, it's not the impression you get then. The impression lasts with you. It's not like you wait a day and then you say, oh, I was so taken. You know, no, that's the impression you have and you carry it with you. These things are really important. Well, they're really important. And I think increasingly um, we're going to rely on them even more, these instant cues to make, you know, a generally reliable decision so we can move on with the next piece of information that's presented to us. You know, we're living in this world now that is incredibly complex, it's uncertain, it's ambiguous, it's scary often as well. And we kind of don't necessarily have the time or the resources or, you know, sometimes we just don't know what the answer to a question is. There are tough questions being asked of us, you know. Uh, and we look to these messenger traits as just instant reliable cues to say, right, well, I'll listen to her rather than him, or I'll listen to this news feed rather than this website uh, because of one of these, you know, eight messenger traits. And it just allows us then to get on with the next decision we have to make in this crazy information overloaded world that we actually live in. So I think you're exactly right. That ability to reflect and to consider different points of view, um, whilst, you know, I think most people would suggest that they'd like to have that facility and perhaps they say that they do. The reality of the modern day world means that we just have to kind of quickly make a decision and then move on. I have to say that I'm constantly enjoining people to say, are you listening to an opinion or a fact? <laughs> and if it is a fact, are you sure it's the right fact? You think it's a real fact? And uh, I'm always surprised at how few people don't distinguish between an opinion and a fact. But Actually, your research bears this out. It's like, I want to l listen to my set of facts through your opinion of what the facts are. That's what you're garnering, for instance, through the media. That's exactly right. We are in this situation now where increasingly we are failing to separate out 
what's being said from who is saying it. You know, we, we the messenger and the message become essentially the same thing. And as a result, the messenger is now the message. We don't have to worry about what's truth, what's fact, what's opinion. Um, if I believe Joe as, a, as opposed to believing Peter, or if I believe Sharon as opposed to believing Lauren, uh, and that's the decision I've made, then, okay, I'm just going to go with that. Uh, and, and, and that's uh, shaping and influencing a considerable amount of our decision making now. Well, for those of you who say, well, I never appear in the media, I never make a speech, this has nothing to do with me, or this just has to do with me listening. If you ever go in to try to get a job, you try to sell a position that you have at work, you try to sell a member of your family (laughs) on something, you are a messenger. And uh, I think the simplest one to take there is, uh, is looking for a new job. It really does pay to look your best when you go on a job interview. Sadly, it is true. Um, And actually, there was one fascinating study looking at um, even on CVs, you can put a picture, of course. And if you're more attractive and you add a picture to a CV, you're more likely to get a callback. Um, Whereas if you're unattractive and you put a picture, you're, you're actually worse off than had you put no picture at all. So this obviously kind of implies that maybe we should be thinking more about these biases that are traditionally not included in our list that we think of when we think of unconscious bias that may affect this kind of thing, like job recruitment and promotions. Um, However, it's clear to us that even subtle things like uh, attractiveness can actually have quite a strong impact. And and maybe that's where AI will end up playing a role, uh, because a well-programmed computer is not going to be thrown off by a handsome face. (laughs) whereas a human sitting on the other end may well be. Well, we're going to program the computer to look for the handsome face, I'm afraid. So, (laughs) you know, we end up being human in the end. We end up always being human. I am reminded of uh, uh, several years back, OkCupid, which is a dating site, uh, mostly here in the United States, I believe, uh, they're known for doing tests. They're very interested in tests. And in several years back, they I think they were going to do 24 hours where you couldn't see the picture of the person yeah. you were trying to. And I think they had to call it after four or five hours. There was such a protest. But the people who did make you know appointments to to meet up for coffee or some they found that while they weren't very physically attracted to the person they really did enjoy the meetup you know <laughs> they had a much better time <laughs> became friends you know this kind of thing so it it really tells you right there what you look like makes a big difference I read some of their blogs and it is absolutely fascinating, some of the tests they did. And they got in a lot of trouble for it, I think, because people were not responding in the way they'd hoped. Um, But essentially what they were doing for a while is testing uh, if you had a picture as well as a personality rating. People could make separate ratings on looks and on personality. And they thought, okay, maybe this is a good idea. But actually what they found was the most remarkable correlation I've ever seen. If people were rated as attractive, they were also seen to have a good personality. And if they were unattractive, people just said they had a bad personality. Um, And it really was quite a remarkable uh, finding just how strong this correlation was. It was almost like there was no such thing as as an ugly but well-read and smart, funny person uh, in their data set. It was uh, quite 
quite disheartening, actually. Well, perhaps um, we can all agree radio is for us. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can. We can. We yes. agree? That's yeah. what we we'll can. All yeah, agree. we can. Yeah. <laughs> I great. certainly have a face for radio. <laughs> you do? Oh, well, we're all in agreement there. We're all in agreement there. Here's another one that kind of threw me. You write, false stories spread faster, deeper, and more disparately across audiences than true ones. Yeah, it's unnerving, isn't it? This is um, the work of uh, Sinal Arrell, actually, from MIT, who uh, found that, you know, when social media platforms and, and, and news platforms disseminate fake news, they spread much quicker, much more virulently than uh, truthful news. And one of the reasons for that is that fake news is simply more arousing, more attention-grabbing. Um, there's another aspect as well that uh, Arrell also finds in his research, which is this idea that um, humans are predominantly responsible for spreading fake news. It's not bots. Uh, bots are just as likely to disseminate news, uh, whether it's fake or true, but not so the case with humans. And so there are two fundamental reasons why, um, you know, there is this, uh, you know, increasing virulent spread of, of fake news uh, in, in, in our media. The idea that there are now these platforms, uh, news media uh, platforms that are disseminating fake news, it, it does present society with a problem. And, and that problem, of course, is uh, whether or not policies should be put in place, safeguards should be put in place to, you know, almost signal to readers that what they're about to consume um, is likely to be factually correct or have some wisdom behind it. You know, in, I'm, I'm reminded in, you know, in, in, in the food industry, uh, we're now given on most packaging information about you know whether a food is good for you or not what it contains that might be harmful to us we're largely given warnings uh, about you know what we should be consuming and, and what we should perhaps consume less of and one wonders whether or not a similar uh, approach may come about in 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 in, in the news uh, media as well um, you know exactly who defines what truth is is a obviously a, a big question but i think you know I think it's the case that we probably do need some help to be able to navigate our way between what is true and, 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 and what is probably false. Um, I know that I certainly could. <laughs> I'd welcome that. Another problem with that is the fact that humans in their memories don't have little tags that say true, false, true, false. If a fact goes mm. in, you believe it's a fact whether it's true or not. So we're consuming mm. all of this information. If it turns out some of it is dead wrong, intentionally dead wrong, we have a hard time with that as humans. Absolutely. And sometimes when we do find out that actually it was wrong, we fail to update our beliefs accordingly. And so you can see uh, where there were lies that were believed in the past, sometimes even when they are then rectified, there's some remnants that stick around. Um, in in people's minds and in in essentially the sphere of uh, consciousness that is our society, and uh, and and sometimes that's because people just don't hear the new news. They don't hear that actually this was false. And you know, vaccines are the kind of obvious example for this, where there was a link uh, with autism, which was published in a quite reputable journal at the time, which was then debunked later on. They withdrew um, it, it themselves. It, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. Right. 
Um, but but actually, the legacy of that is so strong um, that it seems to have taken on a life of its own. Yeah, it's 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 pretty hard to change your mind uh, once you've decided about something. It's uh, it can be quite painful to you know admit you've been wrong and to take a different course. Now we've had four hard traits, four soft traits. One of them is the best trait to have to be believed, and that's trustworthiness. How did you determine that trustworthiness was the best? Well, like we determined most of uh, the book, actually, which was to look at the research that's been conducted and particularly the cross-cultural research that is as large scale and not just confined to the US and Western countries. Um, and what we found, actually, I was quite surprised by this. I thought maybe socioeconomic position would be would be number one. But in fact, trustworthiness came out on top as the number one messenger trait to have. And this was true in two large studies, one looking at um, what people value in themselves and others, and also in an advertising context, where if the messenger is credible and appears trustworthy, it's more like the endorsement is more likely to have a positive effect on watchers. Um, and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense in that if if we are risking something, then ultimately we really stand to gain a lot if if it's a correct assumption that we're making about somebody and that they are indeed telling the truth. And we stand to lose a lot if they are in fact going to betray us. Um, so I can kind of see why in, in that context it makes sense that trustworthiness would be so important to us. Now I'm going to give each of you the trait of trustworthiness. I'm assigning that to each of you. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you from that list of hard and soft, and I'll read them again, you each get to pick one more. And I'm going to assign that to you because you want to pick the right one because that's all you're going to get for a lifetime. We have it here. So hard was socioeconomic position, competence, dominance, and attractiveness. And soft was warmth, vulnerability, trustworthiness, and charisma. So you get one more, and this is going to determine your best success for your lifetime. Steve, what do you pick? Oh, that's a tough one. That's such a great question. I think I'm going to take competence. I'm going to be the trustworthy, competent messenger. Okay. How about you, Joe? I think, I think it's a good combo. I'm going to have to say something different now, though. So I'll go with charisma, actually. Ooh. And I'm going to be the one who speaks eloquently. And, and in fact, I think, you know, take some of Steve's natural charm <laughs> from him. <laughs> well, I think it's good because you wrote the book together. You can get out there. <laughs> you increased your numbers. Is it really possible to really try to hit all of these or are some of our personalities just not up to the up to the task i think that's true yeah uh, the message here from us is not read the book and try and be great at all of these eight things the, the message really is you know understand these eight things and actually recognize where you know your your personal preferences and, and strengths lie um you know and you know, if you think about something like dominance, dominance typically is, you know, a, a, an ingrained personality trait. There are just people out there that just want to win at all costs. You know, they have that rule to the victor goes the spoils. Everything is a, you know, everything is a competition. Um, so I think it's more recognition of um, where your 
preferences or your personality lies and, and maximizing that. And perhaps, you know, from an audience perspective, understanding how these traits could unduly influence you um, and perhaps knowing a little bit more about them and how they operate, you know, might give us uh, a little bit more of a defense against some of the uh, the messengers uh, and, and their messages that are directed to us that probably would steer us in a in, in a wrong direction. Well, Steve and Joe, this has been terrific. I hope uh, I hope we get to meet in person someday and you'll come back on the show. That would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much, Moira. It's been terrific talking to you. My guests today are Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks. The book is Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. It's published by Public Affairs. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We all know, or at least suspect, There's a large amount of data about each of us out there in cyberspace. Gary Davis refers to this as your personal data lake, and it can use some grooming. Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. Gary, welcome back to Tech Nation. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, You mentioned something to me, and I thought, I don't think I've ever heard of this before. What is a personal data lake? Funny you asked that. First thing, why is it you always laugh when you intro one of my questions? Like, well, (laughs) come on. Because I'm always like, what is this? (laughs) So a personal data lake, you think about this. We use the term data lake in business a lot, and it's this accumulation of all the information we're collecting about customers and things like that, and it's we use that data to help us provide better services. But if we think about it today, even when a, a newborn baby is born, we start collecting data about that baby. We put pictures of it online. We, 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 it's whole life. We buy prescriptions for it. We make appointments yeah, for it. We, we pay with credit cards. And all this stuff. And, and so you start building this profile. And it, here in the United States, almost the instant somebody is born, they're given a social security number. So they already have an identity so anyways, the point, a personal data lake is this, this accumulation of all the stuff online that represents us. I think about myself. You know, today I have 37 devices in my home. Every single one of those you devices. You have how many devices in 37. your home? Counting your refrigerator? I mean, my refrigerator is not smart, but I do have a smart vacuum cleaner. Uh, so, hey, listen. This is, you need to bring it over to my house. I could, well, I got two German <laughs> shepherds, and they shed bad. So if I can tell my vacuum cleaner, well, just do the kitchen. But one it's, of those run around little yeah, vacuum Yeah, yeah, it goes cleaners. around, it picks everything up, and the dogs look at it kind of curiously, like, what's that doing in here? But anyways, the point being is I have 37 devices, and all these devices have some type of information about me. You think about something we all use every day, most every day, is the GPS on our phones. Yeah. Well, when you're using that GPS, it's collecting information about where you're going, where you're visiting. Certainly you're getting... where you are the moment you turned it on. Yeah. It, and, and so there's this massive information between the applications and the devices we use that, that build this data lake. And as we get older and older and older, this data lake gets bigger and bigger. And, and what I try to – what I think people should be mindful of is as you collect this data, is, is that data I want out there? When I – if I'm 20 years old – and all of a sudden, I'm 40, and I look back, and like everything about me ever is accessible. Is that a good thing? And what I would encourage people to do is just pause. You, you know, instead of just just putting your data out there willy nilly, take your time to think about, well, geez, do I do I need to use that application? Do I need that device? Do I understand the consequences that, of that device? 
and the data it's collecting and how that company may be using that data. So you have 37 offspring here you're considering. <laughs> I know. I'm a prolific so reproducer, so I'm, I'm that kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, how many of those 37 devices are generating data out there? Not con- just, You didn't contain it within your house, but that may be generating things in your personal data like out there and might be accessible. All of them are. Every single device has is, is got some sort of cloud connection. I have a, a, a doorbell which takes videos of anybody coming to the door. That data is stored in the cloud. I access it through my phone, but the data is in the cloud. Even the vacuum cleaner puts data to the cloud. My security cameras, my thermostats, my smart TVs, all these devices share some amount of data to some sort of cloud instance. Now, that data is going to vary based on you know, what I'm doing with the application, things like that, but the data is going out there. And it's the 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 concern that we really don't think about the consequence of all this data. In fact, I think about my kids is a good way to do it. I don't think that that my children, who are are college educated, very well adjusted individuals in their lives, have young families, really give a lot of thought to all the stuff that's out there. As we get older, I think, oh my goodness, I've 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 I use all these apps and I do all these things and, and what's going to happen to me? And we something... knew a life where you weren't traced. Yes. You'd, you'd go to Europe. I'm sure now in retrospect, our parents were just like, oh, the, all the weeks or months we were over there. It's like, what are they doing? And you might call back once yeah. in a month and hope somebody's home. You couldn't even leave a voicemail in those days. And it's like, where are they? We don't know what country they're in. We don't know what, you know, and now you, you know, know where everybody is around the world all the time. Yeah, that's that's the point. It's like, and that, by the way, the, the notion of the data lake is that data never goes away. You're right. You're you're vacationing in Europe. You're able to use your social media and other means to make sure your loved ones know what you're up to, that you're okay. Yeah. But that data never goes away. What if you you heaven forbid you do something you really regret that was you you caught on camera and all of a sudden the permanence of this is what people need to be cautious of because it could affect your ability to get a job some point. It could affect your relationships. There's all these consequences of this data being collected and stored and and out there in a very unfettered way. Now, I look at some of our students now, our graduate students who would be in their 20s generally somewhere, you know, not not, from 21 to say 30, Mm -hmm. the great bulk of them. And I noticed that now uh, their pages, which would be a Facebook type of thing, anything, there's several, you know, Instagram, they don't have their real names anymore. Yeah. They used to, sort of in the early days of it. Now they're sort of, oh, yeah, well, you'd look for me under, oh, yeah, you have a funny first name or you have a, have a, a completely different name. The, I love the guy who created the Junkie McJunk Junk or something like this, <laughs> or junk email and junk. I like junk your Junkie photo, McJunk stuff. Yeah. Junkie McJunk, you know, and so in a sense, they've caught on to I need to have my official life and then I need to create this other persona that unless I told you, you wouldn't know. Or, or perhaps they, they put something on that initial page that they regret. Whoops. Yeah, for example, what's out there? Always out there. That's is it. And so, like, for example, I think my son is a consequence of that. He put some stuff. I mean, keep in mind, my both my kids were raised when Facebook, social media was coming of age. All new. All new. They they consequences. No consequ- nobody knew. Put it out there, right? What's going to happen? I can. I, I'm young. I can get rid of it. And I think he probably put some stuff that he regrets. 
So he actually, he uses a derivative of his, derivative of his name, but he doesn't use his real name anymore in social media. And, and I get that. It's like at some point you, 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 you probably put some stuff out there you're not very proud of perhaps. And the you best... might have been at the time. <laughs> yeah, at the time, it's like, giddy up. College <laughs> life is great, right? Yeah. Oh, that picture. That oh, was so bad. Yeah, but, so but, so, but I don't know. I don't know if, if again, the, the, the young people today are more astute and more aware that, okay, having my real information out there could have consequences or they have perhaps put something out there earlier. I think, oh, I got to distance myself from that personality. But they do know that they have a personal data lake out there, well, and they know it early now. They, they do, but I don't know if they under, if they look at it in, in the long view. I think they say, well, geez, I, I need to be mindful of, of what I'm putting out there. But still, if you look at that same age that you talk about, the, the 20s, the 30s, let's say, you know, they we have data that supports this. They, they are more willing to take discounts and rebates for using that data than than somebody who's older. So, for example, they're willing to use it, but I think that they understand the value of that data, that that their data is now currency, and if they want people to make money off their data, they're going to have to deal more on their terms than they may have in, in the past. Well, I have one final question for you. Do you really think anyone will be willing to go to your house now that you've described what's in it, how the, how the data goes out to the cloud in your data lake? They're on it <laughs> well, from the moment they ring the doorbell. Or, or they walk around the house. There's cameras all around the house. I, I would I, I would think they're probably less concerned about walking up to my house and being caught on camera than being greeted by my two you know, 80 and 100 pound German Shepherds. I have a feeling that would probably be more of a deterrent than, oh, there's a camera on there. I guarantee the they're door. saying, Gary, come on over to our place tonight. <laughs> we, know, we don't need to go over well, there. Yeah, well, perhaps, perhaps. We, we just don't know. I just know that, that um, if they're going to come, they're going to be caught on camera. That's right. And you can and you're, you can order order your vacuum cleaner to clean up after them. It's gonna, exactly. It's very handy. It's very handy. <laughs> Gary, always a pleasure. Come back. See us anytime. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.